I'm so sorry. I won't hit you again. That's what you said the last six times. That's bullshit. I would have left him the first time. Actually, only 33% of teens who are in a violent relationship even tell anyone about the abuse. And Alma's here to tell us some more about dating violence. Does anyone have any questions? Hey, Zach, do you think you need an acting class? <laughs> I got a question. <laughs> We're in high school. What's this got to do with us? A lot. Because one in three teens are abused by the person that they're dating. Every year, nearly 1.5 million high school students are physically abused by the person they're dating. Oh, hell no. First dick that lays a hand on me is going to get the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> yeah, and he's going to kick you right back. That's how violence escalates. That's what happened to me. I didn't listen to any of the warning signs. Well, so why didn't you just leave him the first time he hit you? Because I didn't think I deserved any better. There's some flyers from loveisrespect.org in the back. Make sure you grab one. You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast. The one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to the final episode for season four of Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, I'm Michael Bayliss, and my co-host Mark Allen is taking a well-deserved break for this episode. You have just heard an excerpt from East Los High, a teen drama series with an all-Latino cast set in East Los Angeles, USA. Now into its fifth season, East Los High incorporates public health messages into its episodes, notably healthy choices around contraception and family planning. This is due to the fact that East Los High is supported by Population Media Centre. PMC supports the production of TV and radio programs throughout the world. This includes radio and television soap programs in countries as diverse as Ethiopia, Papua New Guinea and the USA. These programs all share a common thread of encouraging positive reproductive and family health choices among their audiences. From the PMC's website, I read, We make the stories that remake our world. We're raising a global sustainability through community empowerment on the most human level by telling transformative stories. Trained in the art and science of storytelling for social impact, we partner with local talent and production teams in countries around the world to create award-winning, popular entertainment for TV, radio and the web that is positively life-changing, especially for women and girls. By addressing the most pressing fundamental threats to global sustainability where it matters most, in human hearts and minds, we inspire entire communities to choose a healthier, more equitable and flourishing world for all. Now, I must say, I often find myself feeling a healthy dose of envy of PMC and what they've been able to achieve. For many population-based organisations who advocate for policy change and a fact-based conversation, there can be a feeling of forever not moving forward. PMC seem to be able to just forge ahead, make Hollywood-worthy productions across the globe and enact changes in attitudes toward family planning and contraception, regardless of the political or social inertia or resistance that <laughs> seems to happen for the rest of us. It is almost as if they exist on a different plane of heightened existence to the rest of us population organisations. Now, it just so happens that Population Media Centre are celebrating their 25th anniversary this year. I thought it would be a good opportunity for PGAP to celebrate with them. So I was delighted when Bill Ryson, founder and president of PMC, accepted the invite to be guest on the show. An incredible public speaker and storyteller himself, Bill takes us on a journey through PMC's inception, the success that PMC has had in engaging people across the world through the power of storytelling, and as is traditional on PGAP, his personal vision of a post-growth world. After the interview, we will play a piece from Paul Winter, accomplished musician and a board member of PMC. Paul combined classical and jazz with the sounds from the natural world into an intriguing and intoxicating blend. I chose a track to talk about from the Earth Voices of a Planet album due to its associations with Australia. 
But without further ado, let's hear it from Bill Ryson, founder of Population Media Centre. Bill Ryson, welcome so much to PGAP. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me on your show. It's been fantastic, actually, over the past half a year, really getting to know Population Media Centre. And it was an absolute delight to have uh, Cody in the newsletter and get to know a little bit more about him as well. Yeah, he's doing a fantastic job putting out our weekly population bulletin, which if your listeners don't know, they can go to our webpage, populationmedia.org, and go to subscribe and get the latest news related to population and sustainability uh, every week. Yes, and we'll definitely put links in the show notes. Bill, tell us a little about yourself, your passions, what first got you into population sustainability, and the directions that led you toward founding uh, Population Media Centre, or PMC as we might call it for the rest of the interview, uh, 25 years ago. Back in school, I was uh, a biology major studying ecology and evolutionary biology, and uh, both in undergraduate and graduate school became very interested in the issue of ecological sustainability. And when I was a student at Yale, there were a whole series of lectures on the global environmental crisis. And one of those lectures was by Paul Ehrlich, who had just published a book called The Population Bomb. I was quite intrigued by what he had to say about population issues and uh, ended up having dinner with him after, after his talk. And my advisor, Charles Remington, that weekend founded the organization Zero Population Growth. Uh, and so in my subsequent meetings over the next few years with Remington, rather than talking about my research, we talked about population issues. And I got more and more intrigued in the issue and decided to go into that field. So I'm here uh, in the population field because of that lecture instead of teaching biology at the college level, which is where I thought I was headed. I have spent now over 50 years working in population, uh, both at Population Institute and at a couple of Planned Parenthood affiliates, and then really since the late 80s working in communications and started Population Media Center in 1998 because of the very strong evidence that number one, uh, reasons for non-use of contraception mostly have to do with cultural and informational issues, or in this case, misinformation about safety and effectiveness. And second, that it is critical to change the status of women and girls and to move people towards educating their daughters rather than selling them into marriage at puberty uh, and to help people overcome barriers to contraceptive use so they can plan their families. Yes, thank you so much for that background. And when you detail your decades of experience, um, not that listeners will be able to see, um, but I must say you look a lot younger. Thank you. We like to start off the interviews with a needless compliment. It's a great icebreaker. Now, you've had a, a few trips to Australia and have got to know uh, Sustainable Population Australia who support this podcast quite well. Uh, would you like to delve into that just a tad? Yes. Uh, Jenny Goldie and other members of Sustainable Population Australia have brought me there on, I think, three tours of the country, including Perth on one of those visits and Eastern and Southern Australia on the other two. And I really loved the experience there. I found uh, as a people, the Australian people are fun to spend time with. And the organization is really going about the uh, issue of addressing population in Australia in very intelligent ways. So I'm, I'm pleased to have had an association uh, with SPA and hope to again in the future. Well, it's nice to hear you say nice things about Sustainable Population Australia because I think for many of us, um, PMC are kind of the standard uh, that we measure ourselves up against um, that and perhaps uh, population matters as well. 
I do dare to say that PMC has achieved so much since its inception in 1998. Its influence literally <laughs> spreads across the globe and across multiple communication mediums. Um, so I'm curious, in short, how would you describe PMC's modus operandi and what have been some of the results 25 years later? One of the reasons I started PMC was that it was clear that governments were not going to solve the population problem, in part because of the controversy and in part because a lot of the focus of government programming has to do with things like contraceptive service delivery, which is fine, but there is very little attention to what I indicated earlier is the big missing ingredient, communications to change attitudes about things like family size and girls' education and uh, stopping child marriage. So I decided to start PMC to work globally as opposed to focusing on one country. And, and certainly, I think there is a need for this global work to greatly expand. So far, we've worked in 57 countries. We've had uh, great success in those countries in addressing the issues that I've talked about and other related issues, mostly in the field of public health, but also human rights and environmental behaviors. But there's a lot more to be done, and particularly in the West, which is a tougher media market, but certainly in Australia and the United States, climate-related behaviors of the public are something that need uh, addressing. And certainly in countries, particularly in West Africa, where we've had less impact, less reach, there is a tremendous need to address high traditional desired family size. If you look, for example, at Niger, fertility rate is about seven children per woman. That means during her reproductive years, the average woman will bear seven children, and some bear many more. But when you look at the demographic and health surveys, desired fertility among women is about nine, and among men is 13. So just building clinics is not going to address that. And here's one of the poorest countries in the world, mired in poverty and running out of water, in part because of rapid population growth. So changing those norms to help people live healthier and more economically prosperous lives is critically important for the welfare of people in Niger. And the same is true for all of West Africa, where desired fertility is above actual fertility. I, I remember when we last talked and you said those statistics to me, and I was initially a little bit surprised, actually, because I think there's a typical story that generally, and it's perhaps simplistic, that in many countries in which access to family planning is lower, that you find a dichotomy between um, men wanting more children than what they have and women generally wanting less. But I guess that can depend very differently on where you are in the world. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yes. But think about the fact that in many African countries, and it's not limited to Africa, certainly Nepal is the same, Child marriage is very common. So if a girl is put into a marriage at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, she is being brought up by her husband. Her education has stopped. She has no idea about women's rights or human rights. She doesn't have the self-efficacy to take her own stance. She's really influenced by her husband and in many ways owned and controlled by her husband. Changing that dynamic, uh, giving girls an education, stopping uh, this practice of early and forced marriage is a critical issue for addressing the population issue. Because once a, a girl's in a marriage at puberty, uh, she starts having babies every year. And if her husband wants that, so she's not in a position to stand up to him and to demand contraceptive use or to assert her own position. And in fact, she may have adopted her position based on what he's told her. Yes, it's um, interesting that, you know, in every society uh, around the world, there 
are stories around um, family, which is an intrinsically important part of our lives. But, you know, narratives around our relationships with each other and the story of reproduction is very powerful. So as a segue from that, what are your impressions on the power of storytelling as a tool to affect behaviour change on difficult and controversial issues such as family planning, contraception, and indeed the broader story of population sustainability? And how do you compare this to traditional communication styles within the environmental sectors such as academic papers, conferences, speeches and presentations, etc.? When I was a student of biology, I thought the logical thing to do was just to tell people what they needed to know, because I had spent several years of my life in academia. And so when I went off to work at the Population Institute, at that time I was running the Youth and Student Division, we put out information. And I was surprised that people were not interested in that information. Uh, what we've learned since then is that most people make behavioral decisions, not based in the intellectual part of their brain, but in the parts of the brain that deal with emotion. And this is the work of a brain scientist named Paul McLean, who found through his studies of the functions of different parts of the brain that behavioral decisions are primarily emotional decisions. So it is also the case that we remember things more clearly if we're emotionally involved in them. So for example, for those of us who have experienced September 11, 2001, and I was in New York when that attack happened on the World Trade Center, it's seared into people's memories and they will never forget what they witnessed. Whereas whatever I was doing on September 11, 2011, 10 years more recently, uh, is totally lost in my mind. So memory is enhanced by emotional involvement. And yet in our teaching in schools, much emphasis is put on just giving people information and hoping they remember it for some period of time. Often they remember it till the final exam and then it's gone. So what we have learned from storytelling is that if you have emotion-based storytelling and you design characters that the audience identifies with, they will become so emotionally involved with these characters, they'll write letters to them, they'll send them text messages, they'll name their children after them. And when these characters in their own lives start experiencing things that the audience has never experienced, the audience will learn vicariously from them in a way that it might take a lifetime to learn otherwise. So what we have found is that storytelling through serialized dramas, where after each episode, the audience has a chance to think about what they witnessed and talk about it with friends and family members, is a very effective way of getting people to reflect on their own lives and to stimulate the conversations that lead to behavior change. So if I'm going to buy a new car, or if I'm going to use a new method of contraception, or some other major change in my life, I'm likely to talk with somebody else, a spouse, a friend, a healthcare worker, before I make that decision. And so stimulating those conversations among people who have together witnessed the story of a character suffering and ultimately coming out of their suffering through adopting some health behavior, whether it's use of family planning or use of a bed net to prevent malaria or education of daughters or other innovations, it can lead to dramatic changes in social norms in a relatively short period of time. So for example, one program we did in Ethiopia, one of our first there, was uh, on Radio Ethiopia. Television is still a minor form of media and only limited to the urban elite, but radio is nationwide. And we had just under half of the population listening for a two and a quarter year serialized drama, 257 episodes long, twice a week. As characters like the mother of Fakirta became convinced that family planning was a good idea, thanks to the intervention of her daughter in her life, 
the audience followed suit. Married women who were listening, and 45% of married of women were listening, tripled their use of family planning during the show from 14% to 40%, while non-listeners had a marginal increase. So it's very clear that these programs can dramatically affect behavior. And one of the other ways we've measured the impacts of such programs is at clinics, uh, where clinics are offering reproductive health services. And we have a program on the air. We're showing our characters using those services. And then we have monitors uh, placed at clinics asking new reproductive health clients what motivated the visit. In Sierra Leone, during our broadcast there, 50% of new clients named our program Sally Wansai by name. In northern Nigeria, 67% of new clients named our program. In some other countries like Ethiopia, Rwanda, Burundi, over 20% named the program as the source of motivation to seek services. So we can measure the impact of these shows and they're often far more cost-effective than information and even other strategies uh, using more entertainment approaches. Our cost per new family planning adopter in Northern Nigeria, for example, and that's counting the cost of 208 episodes, writing, acting, production, and airtime distribution across four Northern Nigerian states plus all the research costs, divided by the number of people who adopted family planning and attributed that decision to the program, came out to 30 cents US. So far more cost effective than any other strategy I've seen on the planet. With all those successes, um, as I've mentioned before, PMC to me is a kind of a flagship standard barrier across uh, population sustainability organisations in terms of campaign success and quality of your campaigns. From my own perspective, within Sustainable Population Australia, our campaigns aim to directly change public perception on population-related issue and change policy decision-making whilst also increasing brand recognition of our organisation. But from what I have perceived from PMC, and, you know, I'm obviously a few degrees separation from uh, some of the broadcasted shows in um, Sierra Leone, I perceive sometimes an almost opposite approach with the aim of changing attitudes more subtly and implicitly through shows such as Echoes of Change in PNG and East Los High in the USA, where the audience will probably never hear the words Population Media Centre um, fact check me if I'm wrong here, but is this a fair assessment of PMC's approach? And are there any reflections on the success of this specific approach? The UN Conference on Population and Development in Cairo adopted a program of action that, thanks to my colleague, included encouragement for the use of entertainment uh, media, including soap operas. That word's right in the program of action. Um, and indicated in that statement that providers of such programming should identify themselves as the provider of, of the program. So indeed, in line with that, Population Media Center does include its name in the credits and as the producer of such programs. But people are not sitting uh, listening to the credits. For the most part, they're listening to the lives of the characters. and. Each of these programs is written in local languages by writers in the country and acted by local actors. And based on the policies of that country, none of the programs tell the audience what to do. So these are very human rights-based approaches that just model behavior and show realistic consequences. And they're as in all melodramas, positive and negative characters, and they're also importantly, in our formulation, transitional characters who sort out conflicting advice from positive and negative characters. And using the policy framework of the country for things like their family planning policy and their gender policy, these transitional characters gradually, and with a lot of mistakes along the way, uh, sort out the conflicting advice from positive and negative characters and 
not in a straight line, they gradually evolve into positive role models for the audience. And in doing so, they show the benefits of the new behavior and show the audience how to deal with the pushback that comes from trying something new in a traditional society. So all of those steps are important to the success of the programs. Now, certainly, I'm a great believer in edu educating people about population dynamics. And I have taught myself demography, and I think that understanding population biology, which I studied in graduate school, is something that should be required of all economists, because many economists think there are no limits on this planet and we can just grow forever. Uh, I'm not at all opposed to trying to educate people about population issues, and I do it a lot myself. However, our audiences are not tuning into our programs in order to better understand demographic trends. And, you know, when you look at a film like um, Inconvenient Truth, you learn a lot about climate change, but you don't necessarily learn what you personally can do to address it. So you may end up just a bit more depressed. But with our programs, we believe we want to provide our audience practical steps they can take to improve their own lives. And that's what gets the audience interested. So we're not trying to turn our audiences into population experts. And we're not mentioning population dynamics as an issue. We're addressing issues that will ultimately affect the population dynamics of a country. That's not to say it's not important to address policy issues in a country. And indeed, we make close connection with population officers, population policymakers in a country, and we encourage them to adopt enlightened policies that go beyond providing family planning services. But um, there's a lot more to be done uh, with the public than that in order to get them to live healthy and economically well-off lives. Among many population organizations is this feeling of acting in isolation when the wider world, particularly the environmental organizations, don't want a bar of us. And so to witness PMC being able to create all these um, radio shows and TV shows across the world, it's almost like PMC is existing in a parallel universe. <laughs> actually left following our previous conversation feeling very impressed but also bewildered how PMC managed to get a Hollywood-level series such as East Lost High off the ground. How do you convince people to make a so bizarre series in which population relation issues are going to take some kind of central stage? What is the effort and energy involved in order to get the scriptwriters on board and come up with something that will pass through scrutiny were there barriers in partnering with organisations such as AusAid when producing the PNG program Echo of Change, given the existing taboos around population sustainability? Um, last sub-question. Are there parameters in what can be communicated? For example, are you required to keep the focus on reproductive autonomy rather than the discussion on the implications of overpopulation itself as a prerequisite for these uh, shows? It took a lot to get a show done in Hollywood. Uh, we had an individual, we still have this individual donor who gave us a good deal of money and then said to me, you're doing shows all over the world, but we have a teenage pregnancy problem in this country. Why aren't you doing a TV show in Hollywood since the U.S. is a TV society? And I said, well, we're a small nonprofit. How do you expect us to compete in a place like Hollywood? And he said, I gave you the money, try it. So I thought, okay. So I went to Hollywood and shook hands with producers and distributors. And they all told me I could spend the rest of my life in Los Angeles and never get a show on the air. And I figured they were probably right. So I looked at the teenage pregnancy issue and I thought, we'll probably do a show on our own website. Hispanic teens have very high rates of teen pregnancy, higher than any other group in the U.S. So I reached out through our West Coast representative to president of Telemundo, a Spanish language network, and 
asked her, this is a woman named Nellie Galan, how we might do a telenovela for teens. And she suggested I connect with a producer of telenovelas and films named Carlos Portugal. Clearly, I could not produce my way out of a paper bag. So I presented to him what we had done in other countries. And I said, you know, we've found really top actors, writers, and directors of programs in each country who have created hits that in many cases are the top show on the air. And we'd like to do one for the Hispanic community by the Hispanic talent that exists here in Hollywood. And he said, so this wouldn't be a show where the only Hispanic character is the gardener. I said, this would be about Hispanic teens. And he said, well, that's fabulous. I would love to help with that. And he recruited some of the best writers in Hollywood and actors. We had enough money to produce 24 episodes. So he got to work and we trained the writers after he had recruited them. And they created a great storyline about teens at a high school in East Los Angeles. And then high school was a fictional high school named East Los High. And it really revolved around the lives of the dance troupe at that high school. And it involved a lot of dancing and on the side told the stories of the characters and their love lives and uh, violence that they encountered in some relationships and pregnancies that they encountered in other relationships. And it was really a great show. And I expected it to go on our website, but they had done such a good job. When he put it out for network inspection, eight networks wanted it. We ended up going on Hulu, which is an online network where a lot of our audience, based on our own research, was consuming their programs. And it became the longest running program in Hulu's history was in the top five on that network for uh, five years and was the number one show among Latino viewers for five years. So it was a huge success. And I can't claim credit for it other than having talked to the right people and getting them interested. And the fact that we had had similar successes in places like Ethiopia and why not try it here? A lot of people in the entertainment industry are afraid to address issues because they think, well, if I do that, then I'm going to lose audience and I have to keep it totally issue free. But in fact, what we've demonstrated, not only around the world, but in Hollywood, is you can have an issue-based program that is so compelling it outcompetes other shows. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this in Hollywood, to show in, indeed that you don't have to just have sex and violence in order to attract an audience. You can address serious issues in a way that is meaningful for the audience where they're not feeling lectured, but where they're absorbing uh, and observing the lives of the characters and learning about their the impact of their decisions while realizing a lot of what they're learning applies to them. So it was an amazing success story, and we've developed several other projects for U.S. media. We've done uh, two podcasts recently, one on the state of women with Gloria Steinem advising us, and one uh, called Crossing the Line that people can listen to on Spotify or wherever uh, that deals with the stories of women having to cross state lines to access abortion services since abortion has been outlawed in about half the U.S. states since the uh, abortion ruling of the Supreme Court last summer. So in Papua New Guinea, one of the more interesting places we've worked, we presented the data about our experience in various countries to UNICEF and UN Population Fund and AUSAID and the Packard Foundation and others. And we decided to address a series of issues related to domestic violence, which is extremely high in that country, uh, and family planning, and uh, marine conservation, which is a big issue in Papua New Guinea. And AUSAID was very keen on this. And, and you know, we weren't addressing population dynamics or other issues that, while relevant in Papua New Guinea, might 
make the audience a bit bored, we were addressing issues that related directly to people's day-to-day lives. And the way we've designed our programs, it interweaves multiple issues in a logical way. So we're not addressing one issue for five episodes and then another issue for five episodes. These are the storylines in which all of these issues are interwoven in people's lives. And we ended up doing two programs in Papua New Guinea, uh, one in Pidgin and one in English, and they were great successes. So we were very pleased to work there and to have the support of Australian taxpayers for this work. Uh, So thank you very much. And I know there's a very close relationship between Australia and Papua New Guinea. So we were really pleased about the involvement of the Australian government in this project. But as I said before, we've never thought that focusing our audiences on demographic trends was going to attract a big audience. And so while a show might mention this and might point out the relationship between population dynamics and poverty or high fertility and poor maternal and child health, the primary purpose of the show is to model behaviors that people can adopt that that are realistic within that cultural setting and that can help them improve their own situation. So they're very much focused at the individual and family and community level. I've noticed that Is It Crossing the Line has been nominated for an award. Yes, um, it's actually been nominated for two awards. The AMBI Award, uh, it was one of the finalists, as was the State of Women. It did not win that award. And now the Webby Award. So, yeah, it, it's been given a lot of recognition. Apple uh, has also recognized it as one of the better programs. It's very well done. I encourage people to listen to it. If they're not familiar with what's going on in the U.S. regarding abortion issues, it's really a key dividing line in in this country at this point. And it's causing havoc for women in their lives. So for example, one of the episodes deals with a woman in Louisiana who had just become pregnant when she went to see her eye doctor. The doctor said, "Uh, you have a particular illness in your eye that will lead to total blindness within a relatively short period of time. But there is a medicine to treat it that's very successful. However, under Louisiana law, we can't give you that medicine because you're pregnant and it might have a negative impact on the fetus. So therefore, your only option under Louisiana law is to become a blind mother. And she was not interested in that route. And she flew to another state and obtained an abortion, went back to her doctor, her eyesight is saved, and she's become a public figure speaking out at protests in Washington, D.C. and other places about the fact that these policies have been adopted without any consideration for the negative health effects they may have on women like her. I've listened to an episode or two of Crossing the Line and um, it is really good. I do recommend uh, people checking it out. Now, I know jealousy is a wasted emotion, but I am mildly envious of all your rip-roaring successes. Now, does everything PMC touch made of gold, or have you had the odd blunder here or there? You don't have to answer the question. I'm just No, it's a fair question. And indeed, we've had some learning experiences, or should I say negative learning experiences, So we've had some shows that were well done, but had no impact. And we have looked into, well, what happened here? And one of our failures in some countries has been failure to promote a program. So in multi-channel societies, you need to know about a program before you're going to listen to it. So promotion is a key line item in the budget. And sometimes if donors say, well, well, we need to cut the budget, Uh, it's tempting to cut out promotion. But in fact, you can have a huge impact on a very small audience, but not really accomplish much. So that's one of our learnings. We've also had writers in some countries who said, well, we're trying to address these issues. So let's address issues in every episode. And that's been a struggle because yes, we want to affect these issues and affect behavior. But 
if you make a show too issue heavy, it becomes boring and obvious to the audience. So we've had to really push for our writers, well-meaning as they are, to understand that 70% of this show has to be pure entertainment or we're going to lose the audience. And this is, I think, the learning out of Hollywood, where some shows have attempted to address an issue and had the audience flee because it suddenly got boring. So it's really important to keep this entertaining. And part of the entertainment is suspense. So helping writers understand how to create suspense at the end of each scene and suspense at the end of each episode is critically important. So the audience tunes into the next episode to find out how the cliffhanger was resolved. So all of these are learnings that we've had, and I'm sure over time we'll have more. Uh, We've also had some lucky breaks. So for example, I met with the Minister of Communications in Nigeria, and he was so excited about our work. He said, I'll give you free airtime. So I went to the head of the Federal Radio Corporation of Nigeria, and I said, your minister has offered us free airtime. And he looked at me and said, okay, we'll give you 2 a.m. If you want 8 p.m., you're going to have to pay for it. So we said, we'll pay for it. At any rate, you know, there are some things where you can make a mistake in terms of choice of radio station. I once chose a radio station in Rwanda that had one-fourth the audience of Radio Rwanda. Uh, based on misrepresentation of their audience. And we ended up producing the program. And and then we said, oops, that was a mistake. So we broadcast the entire program on Radio Rwanda and quadrupled our audience. So, you know, we've recovered from some of our mistakes, but clearly we've been intent on learning from every experience, positive and negative, so we can apply those learnings to each new program. You know... (laughs) And I'm not sure if this is just my um, bizarre sense of humour, but wondering how a program such as these would work and being aware of not being too begging the question of the issue. So, you know, you can't have a script where one character is saying, oh, hello, how are you today? Oh, I'm taking contraception. How are you? Oh, good, thank you. You know, I'm sure there's a a real balance. And the clips that you've um, kindly shared with, Uh, me that I had a little look at really put that into focus how the integration can be seamless. And when you're in a society where 10% of the population is using contraception, if you start off by talking about contraceptive methods, the audience has heard about them, but they're not interested. They see them as uh, either risky or dangerous, ineffective. So starting with That topic, in my opinion, is a big mistake. People need to get to the idea of having the right and the ability to determine the number and spacing of their children before you start talking about IUDs and condoms. When you start in some societies, you find out people are fatalistic and they think God determines how many children they're they're going to have and there's nothing they can do about it. And so just taking people from fatalism to self-efficacy is a huge step. And that has to happen before you start talking about methods. So it's not the what of family planning, it's the why. And the idea that spacing children leads to better health and better nutrition, and that limiting family size, size leads to better economic welfare. Once you get people buying in on those concepts, then you can talk about how do we get there. I know one of my colleagues really like that line you use, um, that family planning leads to better economic outcomes. And that's a cause and effect that I think um, people are still quite grey on, that actually having the family planning systems in place will lead to the better education and economic outcomes for people. Um, often it's assumed it's the other way around, but uh, at the very least, it's a two-way street, isn't it? There's good evidence that no country has gone from developing to develop status economically since World War II without first promoting smaller family norms and along with that, 
use of various approaches to achieve smaller family norms, including family planning. When you look at all the countries that have made that transition, what one sees, and this is true of most of the Asian tigers, which are many of the examples of those countries that have made that transition, is as the government or private entities promoted smaller family norms and delaying childbearing until adulthood, and couples went from having six children to two, without any change in family income, there was money left over at the end of the month because they weren't spending their money on food, housing, and clothing as they had been with more children. So that money went into bank accounts and those savings led to a capital marketplace that allowed businesses to borrow and expand. And that led to demand for employees and that drove up wages and that created taxable incomes that the government could use to build infrastructure like schools and roads, both of which increased economic productivity. And people could spend some of the money they had left over at the end of the month on education, which increased economic productivity. And people could spend some of their leftover money on elective goods that led to stimulation of the manufacturing sector. And so demographers have adopted the term demographic dividend for this transition to low fertility leading to economic growth. And indeed, because the two have happened hand in hand, some economists have concluded, well, it's just economic growth that leads to lower fertility. But in fact, that is not at all clear. And in some countries like Sudan, economic growth led to higher fertility because people could now afford more children in a country with high family size desires. So it's pretty clear that uh, getting people out of poverty darts with reducing fertility. Now, there are a lot of other steps in terms of management of the economy that are important, but the demographic dividend is something that many policymakers and far too many economists have not understood. With that in mind, it's almost a feeling like uh, neoliberalism has got it the other way around. In the absolute scare of declining populations, it seems to want to throw ever more people to feed the speculative frenzies via our housing markets and financial systems. That leads me to degrowth and postgrowth as a broader concept, and Postgrowth Australia podcast is an effort toward broadening SPA into the wider discussions around degrowth and the whole IPAT equation. It does seem to be working. We uh, have had our highest number of downloads this month and and even have like pleasant disagreements around population on air and trying to demonstrate that you can have a difference of opinion and that's actually okay. And we like to ask all guests, their personal vision of a day in the life of a degrowth future. So, Bill, if everything went your way, what would be different in a day of the life of your degrowth future compared to today's business as usual? I think about this in terms of the fact that I'm focusing all of my activity on addressing sustainability issues. And if indeed we had achieved a sustainable planet with equal rights for all, I might do something quite different, like learning how to play the pipe organ uh, or writing a book. What will happen when we are in a sustainable society will be a flourishing of innovation and of creativity by people who are not stuck in the day-to-day -day grind of making a living or of addressing issues that come out of climate change and poverty and competition for jobs, uh, because indeed, with a post-growth society, I think jobs will be plentiful and people will live well. Uh, it's interesting, though, that many economists do not see this. I was in Germany for the Global Economic Symposium and spoke at a panel on climate change, I actually spoke from the audience, I wasn't on the panel, and the panel talked about electric cars and solar panels and other things that people should do, never mentioned the word population. So I raised my hand and I said, here in Germany, 
the country is paying $16,000 per German baby born out of concern of sustaining the retirement program with retirement ages set decades ago when people were not living and fit as long as they are now, it would solve your pension problem if you changed retirement age by one year, but instead you're paying $16,000 per German baby born so people can have infants who are 100% dependent on their parents, which will worsen the situation until they are productive members of society. And like Australia, which pays a baby bonus, some people will have children anyway without a bonus or a bribe to do so. But the people who have it just because of the bribe are the worst motivated parents. And we've seen examples in another country, Mongolia, of people having a baby to collect the baby bonus and then turning the baby into an orphanage. This is a terrible use of government funds to encourage people to have babies. And I said further, if we do have a climate crisis, and we do have a water crisis, we do have a food crisis and an energy crisis, what in the world is a developed country doing encouraging people to have more consumers in their society. It makes no sense. And I, I hold that position today. And I think Australia would be much better off if it focused on how to live well in a country where the population stables off and declines, as I think we're witnessing in Japan, where people are doing very well in a country where population growth has stopped. This, I think, is the beginning of a trend towards this post-growth society, I don't think we're anywhere close to getting there uh, because of these countervailing forces by people who think, well, I can send, sell more housing starts if the population grows. But uh, it is self-interest that's driving economists to encourage people to have more children. But it's not serving the public, and it's certainly not serving the long-term sustainability of the planet. Thanks for that, Bill. And just like exponential growth, all good things must come to an end, including this interview. Many of the shows that PMC support are regionally produced, so Australian PGAP listeners probably won't get a chance to see, for example, East Loss High or listen to Echoes of Change um, in, in their full. How can Australians find more about the great work of PMC? And I know your podcasts are one great example. Certainly going to our website, populationmedia.org is one way they can find out a lot. Subscribing to Cody's weekly email is another way to find out at least what we're saying about population and sustainability issues. And on our website, one can listen to clips from various programs. So certainly that is possible. There are some English language programs like Echoes of Change and there are, are others, there are clips, I think, from East Los High on our website, so people can find out more there. And certainly, if people are interested in becoming involved in PMC, there are lots of ways on our website they can become involved. Excellent. And it's worth saying that PMC, you're having your 25th anniversary this year. So um, what are you doing to celebrate it? I'm wearing party hats. We have, we have two events planned so far. Uh, Amanata Torre uh, of Senegal uh, was the head of gender, culture, and human rights at the UN Population Fund when she responded to a request I made to fund the creation of an electronic game to address violence against girls and bullying. And that game, which is a football-themed game, has been played all over the world. It is uh, something we're now using in camps uh, with boys and girls playing this game together and discussing bullying. And it's been highly effective. It's a 13-episode game. Uh, we're in the process of updating it in various ways, and it's now playable on cell phones. But Amanata is coming to Burlington. She went home to Senegal after leaving the UN to become prime minister and then now as a member of parliament and a candidate for president of Senegal. And she's coming here to receive an honorary doctorate from Champlain College in May. Champlain is the organization or the, co the college we partnered with. Their emergent media center trained students in how to design electronic games. So it was actually students who designed the 
PMC electronic game that we're now using all over the world as a teaching tool. So we're having an event with her and uh, donors in New England and various others who are coming to celebrate what she has done in partnership with PMC. Then later this year in September, Gloria Steinem, who's been a member of our program advisory board for decades, and Paul Winter, a musician who's also a member of our program advisory board, are going to come together in New York for a 25th anniversary celebration. And Gloria and I will have a conversation about women's rights and the work of PMC. So those are the things we have planned currently. We're cooking up some other ideas, but right now that's what's on the books. Well, some people celebrate with the cake and champagne and you celebrate with new technologies and new campaigns. So <laughs> <laughs> that's really great. Well, look, Bill, thank you so much for coming along on PGAP. It's great to get the story behind the stories. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure talking to you and I'll look forward to listening to your podcast in the future. Uh, listening to Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your co-host Michael Bayless. We just spoke with Bill Ryson, founder and president of Population Media Centre. A big shout out to Paul Winter who kindly donated his musical piece Talk About that we just heard. A shout out to the team behind the Hulu production East Loss High, an excerpt of which we heard right at the start of this episode. Big thanks to Cody Peluso, Digital Advocacy and Mobilisation Manager at PMC, who got the gears in motion for this episode and whom I interviewed for a recent edition for the Sustainable Population Australia newsletter. I wish PMC much deserved joy and celebration for their 25th anniversary uh, that's happening this year on June the 15th. The work that they have done since 1998 has been nothing short of jaw-droppingly amazing. I will also be celebrating a very short break from PGAP as we now come to the end of Season 4. I would like to give a shout out to my co-host Mark Allen who joined me at the start of this season. I'm very sure his inclusion in the hosting of this season played a very significant role in PGAP reaching an 
all-time high record number of listens as the season progressed. And since I'm handing out shout-outs like confetti, I would like to at last but not least thank Sustainable Population Australia for supporting this podcast, in particular the day-to-day running costs. What I'm most grateful for is that SPA have allowed PGAP to branch out from their usual messaging, not only by discussing topics that don't directly relate to population sustainability, but also to invite guests who may have a different or opposing view to what I or SPA may think. I'm proud that PGAP is unique in that different perspectives on this controversial topic can be held openly and respectfully, and I hope this can provide some kind of model of how differences of opinion can be discussed in the wider world. We aren't going to solve the multitudes of emergencies faced by humanity by one set of values. The price we pay for being a social species is mastering the art of compromise. Now, while we take a short break, this is the perfect time for you to reach out to us at PGAP and let us know your feedback, which topics you like or like slightly less, and what topics and guests you might like us to explore for season five. We are getting a lot of listens these days, but not a heap in the way of dialogue, and we would like to strongly invite you to speak with us. As it is the end of the financial year, if your pockets are feeling any deeper than shallow, consider a donation to Sustainable Population Australia. A funded spa means many more seasons of PGAP, and even better, it means I don't have to set up a Patreon account. If your pockets are not full or if donating is just not your thing, consider spreading the unholy gospel of PGAP by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast platform. Don't be shy in sharing this episode to anyone who you feel may listen. Cash in on anyone who owes you a big time favour. As we always say, until then folks, until then.